0: What I want to do just uh, by way of structure here is spend a bit giving you uh, a a summary of things from the General Assembly, and uh, as I'm kind of wrapping that up, I'm going to let uh, Dr. Michael Rogers make a a couple of brief comments as well, Uh, and then uh, Pastor York and I are going to just field questions and and go from there. So maybe just uh, as a, a brief summary, some of you have been in Presbyterian churches, Uh, for your whole life, and others of you are new to this uh, denomination, the PCA. So just uh, as a brief reminder uh, of just kind of how we're structured, each local congregation has ruling elders and teaching elders, and the teaching elders need to be uh, ordained and go through examinations. The ruling elders are members of that congregation who are elected and chosen by each congregation. And those uh, elders form a session, uh, which leads that congregation. The ruling elders are members of the church. You elect your own members, members of each body to be on session. But the teaching elders are actually members of a presbytery, which would be the regional body uh, of uh, the denomination. And so uh, our presbytery, which is the Susquehanna Valley Presbytery, pretty much follows the Susquehanna River. It's uh, central Pennsylvania uh, State College, and actually we we are uh, in charge of the counties north of State College. There just aren't any churches up there uh, in those uh, fairly rural areas at this point in our denomination, but State College down, uh, Harrisburg, York. Gettysburg uh, on the west, uh, Shippensburg on the west, uh, Lancaster uh, down uh, south Lancaster county, um, Reading actually marks a different presbytery on on the east, and so that kind of gives you the bounds of of the presbytery Probably about twenty two I think churches I should have verified that number uh, in our regional body, but then uh, each presbytery I think eighty eight is the number of presbyteries in the denomination as a whole. each presbytery then uh, sends uh, is, is comes together once a year in the, in the General Assembly. And so each, each church can send its teaching elders as well as a set number of ruling elders to be uh, voters or, or delegates there uh, at the General Assembly. The General Assembly meets uh, once a year, except in COVID. Uh, we didn't meet last year, and so this was the first time we were meeting uh, since 2019. And we met this year at end of June uh, in St. Louis, uh, Maj- Missouri, And uh, myself and Pastor York went as teaching elders from Westminster, and then um, Jim Ressler, Tom Lintz, and Robert Hayward were ruling elder representatives from our church uh, that were voting there at General Assembly. So we were there with uh, just over 2,100 other registered commissioners. Uh, which was fairly substantially the largest General Assembly uh, that we've had. The previous high was 1,600 total, so uh, that's a pretty, pretty significant increase. Part of that, we hadn't met in two years. Uh, part of that, I think the significance of the questions that we were discussing uh, brought people to be together. And this was my first General Assembly, so here I am giving a report with nothing to compare it to uh, from prior, so I can just give you my uh, my uh, report on what I experienced and what happened there. But for me, certainly the highlight of the week was the worship services. Uh, the, the whole assembly opens with a worship on Tuesday and then has a worship service on Wednesday and Thursday as well. But particularly that opening service, many men brought their families uh, to that opening worship service, so there were at least 3,000 people uh, worshiping together. That was the first time uh, in a year and a half I'd been in a group like that, Um, and and all in one one big convention center worshiping the Lord together. Just really a a glorious time. I think when we start to, to get to the, the business of uh, our time together, I'll mention a couple of different things we, we looked at, but the most significant questions facing the denomination this year had to do with the ordination of men who live celibate lives but have some identification with uh, gay Christianity and what I'm going to try to do in, in, in marking these questions out is say there is no question in the PCA, and hasn't been any question, uh, about whether living a homosexual lifestyle is appropriate or not, or whether someone should be ordained uh, who lives in a gay lifestyle. Those Everyone has agreed that the answer to that is no. Everyone is, is agreed uh, on that side, which we might say, well, that still leaves a whole lot of questions to talk about, and that's true, but we should I think pause for a moment and thank the Lord uh, for a denomination where there is no disagreement uh, about, that, about that question. I think that's significant. But the question has to do more with what uh, language do we use to talk about ourselves and our lives, and what does that language begin to tell about how do we think about uh, issues of same sex attraction? Is that an orientation that might be true of us that won't change? Is something core to my identity or not? Is it sinful or is it not sinful but God has called us not to participate in it? Those are significant questions. That's very significant, right? There's a question of of terminology. How do I refer to myself and what does that tell others Uh, about how I'm viewing these issues. So I don't want to downplay the issues. They're significant ones that really get to the nature of sin and the nature of sanctification and the nature of our relationships and our identity. So they are significant questions and those were uh, the significant issues at, at play. And some of you uh, like to follow uh, Presbyterian politics, Uh, some of you uh, maybe don't have a sport you follow, so you follow the PCA instead. Um, And and so you're familiar with these questions and and you know all the history here and others of you are wondering, well, what's the background here? Uh, How did we get to where we are? And um, so just maybe by way of some, some brief background, in 2019 at the previous General Assembly, Uh, There was uh, a vote on the Nashville Statement. The Nashville Statement is a a statement uh, that's common in the evangelical world. It's one that many of you might be familiar with. It has to do with marriage and sexuality and, and gender. And the PCA was voting at the time on whether to approve that statement as a faithful statement. It's uh, somewhat extraneous to our own uh, documents, but just uh, to approve it. And in that context, a man who is uh, ordained as a a pastor in the PCA, uh, who lives uh, a celibate lifestyle, but does identify or has identified as a a gay Christian um, over uh, uh, in recent years, stood up and, and made a speech on the floor of General Assembly that really raised a lot of these questions a lot of these questions about terminology about how we understand sin about this title or this this category of orientation and whether that's appropriate or not what sanctification is and how God's work might look in the lives of someone who wrestles with the sin of being attracted to someone of the same gender and so this speech on the floor really raised a lot of these questions And the vote in 2019 about the Nashville statement after uh, Greg Johnson is the name of the uh, um, pastor who who made this speech was a fairly close vote. It, It surprised many people in how close the vote was. Now, because of the surprise and because of the, the issue as it was raised, and then you don't meet for two years, right? You have an assembly canceled the next year. You can imagine that the social media discussion, the blogs, the, the conversation online has been ratcheted up for the last two years of wondering, where, where do people stand on these issues? What's faithful? What's not? How do we proceed And uh, as is also typical, social media, the blogs are not the greatest forum uh, for real productive conversation and I think have uh, helped uh, sow a lot of maybe um, question, concern, or distrust. And that's not to say that the questions and concerns are all inappropriate. There are appropriate questions and concerns, but it's difficult when you can't be talking about them uh, in person. And so uh, that was really what was on the table as we were coming to the, uh, the General Assembly this year. There were three items that the General Assembly voted on related to these questions. Uh, these questions about orientation, about language and terminology, about sin and sanctification related to, to same sex attraction and transgenderism. And each of these was known as an overture. And I'll give you just a, a quick Uh, maybe 30-second overview of how business is conducted, a presbytery, so that's the regional body, again ours is the Susquehanna Valley Presbytery, a presbytery can submit an overture to the General Assembly to propose a change uh, in our our governing documents or to propose something that we might approve uh, as as a body. And those uh, overtures are all brought together. I think on a typical year, there might be 30, 40, uh, 45 overtures that have to do with anything from small language of of the way things have have worked out in maybe uh, the courts or or trials in the church to larger questions such as this. Now, you can imagine what it might be like to debate 45 questions with 2,100 people on the floor debating those questions. Um, It would be a bit chaotic. And so we have what is known as the overtures committee. And each presbytery sends two representatives, a teaching elder, a pastor, and a ruling elder to that committee. So you're dealing with maybe 140 or 150 people on that committee. And they meet first and have a pre-discussion or pre-debate on each of the overtures. And then they make a recommendation on each one to the whole assembly. And those recommendations, they could recommend three things. They could recommend denying the overture. They could recommend approving the overture. Or they themselves can make amendments to it and and suggest amended language uh, to it. And so those questions then come before the whole body with each presbytery having had a chance to have two of their representatives kind of discuss these things ahead of time and bring uh, bring those uh, overtures to the floor. They are then voted on by the whole General Assembly. And if an overture is approved by the General Assembly, it's not done yet. It then has to go back to every individual presbytery for a vote in the following year. And two-thirds of presbyteries have to approve that vote... In order for it to come back the next year. So, as we talk about the overtures tonight, I'm going to tell you about the votes and what the assembly decided. But know that for anything the assembly approved, each one of our presbyteries is now going to discuss that on a local level uh, and need to vote on it. And two thirds of presbyteries would need to approve it. If two-thirds of the presbyteries approve it, it comes back to General Assembly again next year for a simple majority vote. So there's really three levels of voting, well, four if you include the Overtures Committee, in order to see something, a change passed and, and approved. Um, so that's, that's where we're at. But there were three overtures dis- discussing these questions of uh, sexuality that were discussed. The, the broadest item was known as Overture 38, And it was to affirm the work of the study committee that the PCA had commissioned back in 2019 to report on the nature of temptation and sin, repentance, and sanctification related to same-sex attraction, as well as the appropriateness of using language like gay Christian, while also giving a framework of human sexuality. No small task. Uh, but the study committee, I think, did an excellent job. And what, I, what you have, these 12 statements on human sexuality, is the first portion of their report. It's kind of the summary. There's more detail to it. And anyone uh, who goes to the QR code that's provided on the uh, service outline here can find the full report if you'd like. Uh, but these 12 statements boil things down uh, in some straightforward statements. And I think it's really well done. Uh, There are one or two little things that I would have loved to have seen put slightly different, and and actually the other overtures that were passed this year address those things. Um, But I think it's it's really well done. And uh, the committee did an excellent job. The overtures committee, when they were discussing this report, overwhelmingly voted to approve uh, it. I think it was like 112 to 3 or something like that was the vote there to approve it. On the floor of the General Assembly, we just did a simple hand-raising vote, so it wasn't a account knowing how overwhelming the support was for it. And again, it passed with an overwhelming show-of-hands vote. And this, this was significant. I think as you read those, you'll see that it's a well-done statement. There's, I think, very good biblical faithfulness in it. And it was encouraging to see the Assembly approve it Um, with such uh, broad uh, support. The second item related to this question now begins to be, the second and third are the ones that begin to be a little bit more controversial on these things, and I'm going to read you uh, the second overture. It's known as Overture 23, and it has to do with the character that must be displayed by officers in the church. And so in our book of church order, there's a section on officers of the church that could be ruling elders elected from the congregation it could be teaching elders pastors but there's a section on on officers in the church and the overture uh, this was actually slightly amended by that overtures committee but uh, what came out is the following i'll read it to you and then offer a brief comment it reads like this officers in the presbyterian church in america must be above reproach in their walk and christ-like in their character Those who profess an identity, such as but not limited to gay Christian, same sex attracted Christian, homosexual Christian, or like terms, so those who profess an identity that undermines or contradicts their identity as new creations in Christ, either by denying the sinfulness of fallen desires, such as but not limited to same sex attraction, or denying the reality and the hope of progressive sanctification or by failing to pursue spirit-empowered victory over their sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions are not qualified for ordained office. Now, let's break this down uh, a little bit further. What is it saying? It's saying that if someone takes an identity to themselves, uh, if someone describes themselves with language, that says, this is who I am, that does one of three things, either undermines their identity as a new creation in Christ or denies the sinfulness of fallen desires or denies the hope of progressive sanctification, then that person is not qualified for office in the Presbyterian Church of America. And I think, um, I think this is a, a, a well-done statement because it's those key things that are really at stake. If, if someone... Um, talks about themselves in a way that says this is who I am and I don't see that as, a prob- as sinful. Maybe, maybe you might use a term like broken, but broken is not a sufficient term because disease is brokenness, right? Brokenness from the fall could include getting sick. Um, and we want to be clear that when we're talking about our sexuality and talking about pursuing something that the Bible says is off limits in God's plan it's not just broken, there's, there's sinfulness involved. And so we want to identify our, uh, our desires as sinful, and we want to recognize the hope of progressive sanctification. Now, that doesn't mean that we all think that we are going to overcome sins completely in this life. You and I know if we put up uh, any sin, anger, uh, lust, uh, things along those lines— We don't expect necessarily that we're going to arrive at a point where we no longer have any issues with that uh, sin anymore in this life. But we do have the hope of progressive sanctification and we are pursuing greater sanctification and faithfulness. So if someone says, this is just who I am and I don't expect that to change or it can't change or won't change or doesn't change... Well, that's different than saying we know we won't be perfect in this life, but we're pursuing sanctification. So that's what this uh, overture is really seeking uh, to get at. And the overture um, was really meant to, uh, to, to get at um, the study committee report has a phrase in there that says, we must honestly name our sins, but not be named by our sins. That's a great phrase. In other words, we should identify our sins, but we should not make our sins part of our identity. Our identity. Really well said. So this, this overture is trying to spell out that goal. Um, and this, this overture was approved by a very significant majority. Um, so this, um, in the overtures committee, I think the vote was about 110 to 10 something along those lines. And on the floor of Presbytery, was 1438 to 417. So if you do the math, that's almost an 80, 80% vote. Um, and and that's, that's very significant. I think there were some going in who were worried that language like this might be like a 55-45 or 60-40 vote. We just weren't sure Given the debates on the blogs and the internet and Twitter and all of that, where where things stood, so a, a nearly eighty to twenty vote um, was encouraging uh, to us on that. Then the third item, the final uh, item, which was known as Overture Thirty Seven, addresses a section in our Book of Church Order on how we examine men who want to pursue ordination as a pastor or teaching elder. This one is a bit longer. I'm going to read it to you again. It's a bit broader, but it's actually getting at some of the same ideas. It's trying to get ahead of the game. If someone comes and is interested in pursuing ordination, we want to examine them in their character right at the front end. Uh, and this overture is, is addressing that examination. It's particularly encouraging the church, and, and this, while related to this issue really, it was needed beyond that. The real goal here is to say, when we examine a man to be a pastor, we need to give greater attention to the character and not just their theological accuracy. Because I think anytime you have uh, a system of doctrine and you 're in this kind of theological examination, the temptation can be all our questions are theological questions. And we forget to talk about character. But if you read the news, how many men do you hear failing out of the ministry because of their doctrinal questions? Well, it happens, but compared to the number of men failing because of their character. And so that was really the goal here. But in talking about character, you'll see how it brings these same questions up. So it's a bit lengthy, but uh, I'm going to read it to you and, and comment on it again. It says, In the examination of a candidate's personal character... A presbytery shall give specific attention to potentially notorious concerns, such as but not limited to relational sins, sexual immorality, including homosexuality, child sexual abuse, fornication, and pornography, addictions, abusive behavior, racism, and financial mismanagement. Careful attention must be given to his practical struggle against sinful actions, as well as to persistent sinful desires. The candidate must give clear testimony of reliance upon his union with Christ and the benefits thereof by the Holy Spirit, depending on this work of grace to make progress over sin and to bear fruit. While imperfection will remain, he must not be known by reputation or self-profession according to his remaining sinfulness but rather by the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. In order to maintain discretion and protect the honor of the pastoral office, presbyteries are encouraged to appoint a committee to conduct detailed examination of these matters and give prayerful support to candidates. So that's the, that's the text. And you can see the first half really is very broad about character. It's addressing any number of sins and saying we need to do a better job at the front end of examining a man's character. And if you uh, have seen in the news lately, we have men like Mark Driscoll, who again has been forced to resign because of anger and abuse of power. It's not sexual sins, but it's a significant character issue that does damage to the office of pastor. And so it's really, um, you add pornography and other things in there, and this candidate should give clear testimony of reliance on his union with Christ and the benefits uh, of relying on the Holy Spirit. This overture passed by a still significant but a slightly smaller majority. Um, It was 1130 to 692, which worked out to be about, I think, 68 to 32%. Now, why the narrower majority for this question? Well, the debate over this was really over one phrase, and it was the phrase while imperfection will remain, he must not be known by reputation or self-profession according to his remaining sinfulness. And the reason that phrase was of concern is some people felt that it was saying, if anyone knows about your remaining sinfulness, you're not qualified for office. Because it says if he's known by reputation or self-profession according to remaining sinfulness. So if someone says, well, I still struggle with anger or I still struggle with something, does that mean he's out? Um, and, and so there were a number of folks who were concerned about that language, and I think that's why you saw more no votes for this overture than the previous one. Now, I think that's uh, not uh, a good concern. I'm personally in favor of this uh, uh Um, wording, because it's saying, of course, imperfection will remain. We know that a man we're ordaining for office will not be perfect. We know that his remaining sinfulness will be uh, evident at times, but he should not be known by reputation or self-profession according to his sin. And again, put in in a different category of sin, like um, maybe alcoholism or drunkenness. If a man is known by reputation as an alcoholic, he should not be ordained as a pastor until his reputation, because of long faithfulness, has been changed in his community. And so I would say the same when it comes to sexual sins, whether that's pornography or same-sex attraction or whatever it is. A man may struggle with sin, but if, if his reputation is still according to his sinfulness then there's a concern about ordaining him to, to office. He should live such an evident lifestyle of repentance that it's no longer his reputation. And so that's why I, I and, and um, the delegates here from Westminster were in favor uh, of this language. So that's, those were kind of the, the key um, questions Obviously, like I said, there's still specific uh, significant actions that need to be taken. Each presbytery now needs to vote on these, and that will come back to the General Assembly next year uh, to be voted on again. I'm going to f- wrap up here, but I just maybe thought uh, while most of the attention is on these overtures about same-sex attraction, um, there were a couple of other interesting questions that uh, the General Assembly addressed, which it might just be of interest to you. Uh, I won't take a, a lot of time on it, but. One of them is that several years ago, Mission to the World, which is the PCA's uh, missions agency, uh, MTW as it's known, rewrote a number of items in its policy manual. And when it rewrote its policy manual, in the process, it broadened the number of positions that could be held by non ordained men uh, or women. And some of those uh, were appropriate, but there was a concern arose uh, by a number of people that some of these positions really needed to be held by ordained elders. And the reason they needed to be held by ordained elders is because they were essentially overseeing the work of the church. So these would be people maybe who were leaders of a church planting team and not only do they we want them to not only to say hey they're they're leading the work of the church but we want those people to be ha- have to be examined according to their theological faithfulness so that's why we don't want an unordained man it's not just a question of men and women here but ordination and have they gone through the theological training and examination to hold this role uh, and so the general assembly by voted by somewhat of a narrow margin and again there was question of wording and which positions did this apply to, but um, by about a 60-40 margin, the General Assembly voted to say no positions in line authority over church planters or church pastors also need to be ordained officers of the church. This is really the way um, other agencies of our denomination work, like RUF. Any campus pastor with our Reformed University Fellowship is an ordained pastor and the regional directors who oversee them have to be ordained pastors because they're overseeing the work of the ministry of these ordained uh, elders. And so this vote was really bringing MTW back in line uh, with that. Another interesting question that um, may strike some as a a small question, but it was of some uh, interest. Each time a pastor is ordained, he has to state whether he disagrees with the Westminster Confession, that's our doctrinal standards, whether he disagrees in any area with the Westminster Confession. And I would say the majority of men probably have at least some small areas of disagreement, and, and that's okay as long as they're voted as being uh, not striking at the vitals of our religion. That's a good Presbyterian uh, wording for it. But each presbytery has the authority to then determine... First, is it okay for this man to hold this position? But then second, would his teaching of that position cause conflict in our presbytery? In other words, there might be something that we would say, it's okay for a man to hold that position. It's not unbiblical to do so. But to teach that position would really bring conflict in in our region. And so a presbytery has the ability to say, we approve of your position, but we would ask you not to teach this or preach it from the pulpit. And um, just as uh, some examples of that, there are, uh, the PCA as a whole says that there are a number of positions on creation that are legitimate for men to hold. Old earth, but still maintaining God's creative hand and power, or young earth, 724 literal uh, uh, days. But there are some presbyteries where every Uh, pastor and ruling elder is basically in agreement and churches hold strongly to one or the other, maybe a young earth creation position. And and a presbytery might say, it is fine for you to hold another position, but for you to preach it or to teach it could cause significant conflict. And so we'd we'd ask you not to. And so um, a question arose of whether that's still an appropriate uh, authority to give to presbyteries. Should presbyteries be able to ask men not to teach uh, things that would cause conflict? In that that region. And the General Assembly affirmed the Presbytery's right to ask a pastor not to teach doctrines that may still be okay within the biblical bounds, but could cause conflict uh, in that Presbytery. And so that was just an interesting debate uh, that took up quite a bit of time uh, in uh, the denomination as well. And then just a last thing um, a study committee has also been formed, this was two years ago, on domestic abuse. And the goal of this study committee is to give a list of recommended resources to churches on how to think about and examine and approach issues of j- domestic abuse, as well as to highlight best practices for churches uh, to teach and to uh, hold their members accountable um, and to help identify abuse and protect those who are being hurt. Um, and so that, uh, that committee is not yet done with its work, but it gave a report. Um, it's a really excellent uh, committee. Um, Darby Strickland, who has been here to lead the conference, I uh, was part of that. Some of you know the name of Rachel Den Denhollander, uh, who wrote a book, What's a Girl Worth? She was involved in the Larry Nassar uh, scandal. She is uh, a reformed Christian and is part of the committee as well. And so we heard a report from them. So I think um, I will stop there. What I'm going to do is... Uh, give Dr. Rogers here a couple of minutes here. He asked if he could just make a, a brief comment on the denomination, and so I'm going to give him a, a, a two-minute uh, slot here to do that, and then um, I would like to open it up to you for
1: questions. And the, uh, I'm going to comment on a broader issue that, that is very much in, in place here, because if you're a member of this church or any PCA church, you have a right to know That you intended to, since you intended to join an evangelical, Bible believing, Bible preaching, Christ centered church, you have a right to know whether this is still such a church and whether our denomination is such a denomination. I'm here to stand back 50 feet from the struggle. I did not attend the assembly this year, although I've been to about 20 of them in my more than 40 years in the PCA so I do have a pretty good idea what they do, who's doing it, who's leading it, and so on. There was a time when if you told somebody you were in the PCA and they were knowledgeable about denominations, and they might say, well, how are you different from the other Presbyterians, which we would now mainly characterize as the Presbyterian Church, USA? People say, why are there two big Presbyterian churches three-quarters of a mile apart on Oregon Pike. Well, we aren't here to throw brickbats at our neighbors down the pike, but they have to speak for themselves. But they represent a Presbyterian culture and, and doctrinal commitment that was forged in the 20th century, and against which our predecessors, great people like Wilbur Siddons, who was our first pastor here, and others, actually both Mr. Siddons, Mr. Williamson, and I, all Again, in that denomination. The three of us were all ordained there and left. We left. If you don't know why, you could check out a book by J. Gresham Machen called Christianity and Liberalism. It's the best summary of what went wrong in the early 20th century as Presbyterianism basically sold out its entire birthright and said, well, yes, we have this thing called the Westminster Confession and maybe our ministers have looked at it before they're ordained, but quite likely they haven't. And quite likely, they certainly don't hold to it, not all of them anyway. Some would, for sure, but most not. And it got to a point when I was coming out of seminary in the 70s that one of my seminary pals was received by a presbytery after a thorough, hard grilling because they smelled a conservative, which he indeed was. And uh, after the vote, someone said while the man was out of the room while they were voting, they said, well, we hope this is the last of these fundamentalists that Gordon-Conwell Seminary has sent to us. That was the attitude towards evangelicals at that point in mid-20th century. Your belonging to the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, has you today as safe and still strong and secure Reformed Biblical denomination as you can possibly find in the United States of America. I'm not afraid of making that statement categorically. The foundation stones have not moved. Every teaching elder, every ruling elder takes a vow not only to hold completely to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which spells out doctrine item by item by item. It's fairly lengthy. If you've never read it, get a copy from the library and take, take a look at it. If you've been in the new members class, you've at least been exposed to it at some time. We we not only say scripture is inerrant and infallible, we say if I have ever if I would ever change my view in this regard, I consider myself honor and ethically bound to report the change to my session and my presbytery. That's where we stand, folks. That's where we still are. I'm saying what I'm saying tonight because I was disturbed earlier this year to have certain few people from our congregation talk to me and say, hey, is Westminster going to have to leave the PCA? I said, why would you ask that? And Well, I read on a blog, or I read on two blogs, these guys are having a big argument about they can't make up their mind about homosexuality. I said, friend, please, I don't know where these blogs are coming from, but what they're saying is false we are not about to leave over this doctrine at all but we are trying to work our way carefully very biblically fine tooth comb fashion that you see you, what you see in front of you is a condensation of a 62 page document we didn't give you the rest of it did we chris but you can get it so, right. right so yeah it's on the link that's what that's what we do we do theology in great detail when we have to respond to something like this It's like a hydra with many heads, and all those heads have to be addressed. But folks, your denomination, Westminster's belonging to that denomination, is secure and solid and steady. When you don't have a General Assembly for a year, the internet takes over. (laughs) That literally was a very big problem. There were a lot of things out there just floating around, people talking about what they didn't understand, making accusations, making predictions that were not at all accurate or not at all true to reality. Uh, I'm I'm just here to make that comment. If If I have any integrity in your eyes, folks, I would tell you I would lead the charge, or I hope Chris would lead the charge. He's the right one. For us to stampede out of the PCA if we had lost our doctrinal or biblical integrity. It is not lost. It is not in serious jeopardy. Humanly speaking, of course, before God, anything can happen. But humanly speaking, it's not in jeopardy. I just, I just close with, with this way. I used to say, people say, well, what is this PCA? Why are you different? I said, well, right, let me ask if you're familiar with a few people. Uh, have you ever heard of James Boyce? Oh, yeah, great writer, great preacher. Have you ever heard of R.C. Sproul? Oh, I love him. I've been helping a lady find Sproul's books in the library because she loves him. She's she's gobbled up about six or eight scroll books in the last month. Uh, Have you ever heard of D. James Kennedy? Have you ever heard of Francis Schaeffer? Oh, I know all those guys, they're wonderful. I said, good, you know the PCA, because all of those men are key leaders. Well, guess what? All those men are in glory right now, all of them, and many others who started our denomination. And we're struggling today, not struggling, but working as the generation my age and younger are taking over the key posts if they're not already in glory. And that inevitably comes, comes with some kind of striving to redefine, look at questions over again. I'm here to tell you folks, you're in a faithful denomination. Its cornerstones are strong. That's all I'm here to say. Thanks so much, Michael.
0: Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate that. I think uh, there's a certain amount when you go two years with only social media and blogs that all of us were kind of just saying, now, what where, are, where do we stand here? Um, and there certainly was some distrust that was sown over these two years by the, the, the posts, and, and that was a significant thing, but I think we were encouraged. Coming away from the General Assembly. Well, I'd like to take questions uh, that you might have. They could be questions about any part of this. And Rick, start us off over here. Uh, microphone will come around to you, and uh, go ahead and shoot.
2: I, I don't follow what uh, the General Assembly is about as if it were a sport. But I <laughs> did have some particular interest in this, in this particular uh, General Assembly. And I think uh, all of us should um, uh, just earnestly pray that the, the men in our presbytery would um, remain strong and make faithful uh, statements about some of these issues. Um, some of you might not know how it is that particularly Overture 37 came before the General Assembly. Um, There happens to be um, a teaching elder in another presbytery that um, has said that his own particular thoughts about sexuality uh, are not really sin. And the issue that I hope is addressed and is not begged away somehow is that um, even though all of us have remaining sin and have uh, lusts and attractions and uh, thoughts that we should not have, it is still um, unbiblical for a teaching elder to teach that my thoughts um, are not sins when they clearly are, and, and Scripture says so. Um, so the issue came before the General Assembly because his own presbytery, um, in my view, sort of waffled on whether he should continue as a teaching elder and the issue of uh, whether should, should any others be ordained who have these like thoughts um, upset two other presbyteries to the point where they forced the issue and brought that overture forward. My only concern about the wording of that Overture is that it may not as clearly state as I might like that, in fact, what perhaps Overture 23 says, or the other two, um, the thought is sin, and teaching that it is not sin is anathema, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: or should be. So I think we all need to uh, pray for our leaders in this presbytery and for the other leaders of all the other presbyteries, including his in um, west of the Mississippi, um, that you remain strong. Um, Do not allow these things to somehow be worded away or or, uh, watered down uh, in a way that could be interpreted by our own members and those looking from the outside of this presbytery as getting closer and closer to mainstream thought on, on these issues.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Rick. I'll, I'll just uh, comment. Um, I think these uh, overtures are all meant to address that. But the question every denomination has to face is there's theology, and then there's do you practice the theology, right? And so step one is to make sure we have it clearly written down, And then step two is, will we act on that? And there is a trial ongoing uh, right now uh, regarding the the man that you spoke of, and so we'll see then if the actions uh, of the denomination match the the theology and where that falls out. But I appreciate your encouragement to continue to pray. Other questions that you'd like to ask? Nancy and then... uh, Yeah.
3: Thank you. Was
2: there a sense... um, for the whole General Assembly that the nuclear family is under attack, and, and was this then, because this is crucial to the identity of the nuclear, was this then a part of that, or was this sort of in isolation?
4: Yeah, I don't think the nuclear family was really the focus of our discussions, but I'm sure if I pitched that question to General Assembly, everybody would say, yes, <laughs> we, we feel like the nuclear family is under attack. And by and large, I would say our denomination stands very strong behind biblical marriage, parenting, the matters that Pastor Walker preached on this morning. Um, you know, my my hope and trust is that what, what Pastor Walker preached this morning would be welcome and affirmed in all of our churches across the denomination. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think uh, that that wasn't our particular concern or focus this this year. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that is kind of some of the backdrop of our cultural struggle uh, where we are in our society.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I think this, in some sense, is isolated in the sense of its concern. I think everyone is on the same page as far as the concern about the attack on the family and our domestic abuse study committee, this study committee, the issue of the PCA's magazine by faith and the cover article was uh, the attack on the nuclear family so I think the recognition that the family is under attack in our culture is very much front and center um, but this is just isolated in the nature of its concern and the need for discussion on it. Uh, yeah that's a good question Joan
3: Yeah, My question is um, the fact if I'm understanding you correctly that uh, these issues will go back to the smaller groups. And then yeah. one year from now, we decided. My feeling is, looking at what's happening in our culture right now, don't, doesn't anyone feel that a year is too long to wait? I mean, I think our children are being exposed to horrible sin that they believe is good. Mm-hmm. Um, I just read something the other day. I think it's uh, individuals 20 years and under think socialism is good and our republic, you know you have a democratic republic and all that we stand for, including all of our Christian beliefs, are wrong. So I, I feel great, you know, maybe I, I've always been kind of, you know, I want something now yesterday. As, you know, um, And I know like, you know, the Lord keeps teaching me patience, but I mean, I, I don't have any children of my own, but I have a lot of children and nieces and nephews and their children. And I, I hear them talk and I... Uh, see what's happening to our children and in our schools. So ha- did any of the Folks that met have that concern about why are we waiting a whole year or are you going to do like individual changes in? The smaller groups before you even meet in the big group. I don't I don't know.
0: Yeah, if thanks, John. Yeah on that.
3: Yeah I, I, regarding the
4: one-year process it's just it's the process of our government um and kind of to speak into not to be hasty um, you know it, there, there is there's wisdom in not rushing through things so all 88 of our presbyteries are going to grapple with these matters and there's there's actually eight matters eight eight overtures that we're going to respond to as presbyteries uh, two of which, Pastor Walker mentioned, the other six are less significant, more procedural. So our presbytery is going to review these in September and then actually discuss and debate them and, and vote on them in November. So that's going to be our process, and then we send our report back to, the general, back to uh, our administrative committee's office, and then they'll be tabulated for, uh, for General Assembly next year. Uh, but, you know, but even with this one-year delay, it doesn't hinder us from speaking on these things. We can preach on these things, teach on these things. We're not waiting for a decision from the General Assembly. We're, you know, and and we're, we're not getting approval from the General Assembly to do... You know, We're called to preach God's word and to hold fast to what is true. And regar- regardless of the outcome of this vote among the presbyteries, we're holding firm to the standard and going to preach and teach God's word and hold you know, pastors and men coming up for nation accountable. Uh, to Scripture. So...
0: Yeah, I would just agree. We, can, we should be preaching and teaching on these things now, and, and I think we, we are, but there's wisdom in not rushing change. Um, there's wisdom in that process, and that process also helps us engender trust, because one of the issues in the PCA after two years of lobbying blogs and social media is there's distrust. Well, what, what do you mean by that? What are you trying to get at with that, or why are you not voting? You must be thinking... The year of the discussions, we're going to have a number of lunch meetings and discussions in the pastors of our presbytery to discuss these informally Um, as brothers. We hope that the time will allow us to uh, come together and and gain uh, trust and and come uh, together to consensus on this rather than just making a lightning flash decision. So I think there's wisdom to it even as we start addressing them now. Good question. Other questions? We try to spread the questions out at the furthest extremities, so our <laughs> microphone walkers have to get their exercise in. Um, Rachel?
1: Thank you, Chris. I was just wondering if you could... I, feel, I still feel a little bit confused about what progressive sanctification means and what they're looking for in candidates. Yeah. And I was wondering if, with these overtures, if someone like Sam Albury would be a qualified candidate for ordination, someone who affirms and sort of doubles down on I will never be in a heterosexual marriage but I'm committed to chastity and I'm using this as my platform to um, showcase my obedience to Christ. I just wondered if you could yeah. say a little more.
0: It's a great question. I actually asked that very question about Sam Alberry to a, a brother uh, in the uh, denomination. If you don't know, uh, Sam Alberry is uh, uh, another conservative minister, not in the PCA, um, but he has talked about his struggle Uh, with same-sex attraction, but he has clearly identified it as sinful. He has not taken it on as identity. He has said, uh, I I, I turn from this. I'm seeking daily uh, to mortify this and to live faithfully to Christ. Um, And it's someone that I have really benefited from and see as being very faithful. And so just to clarify, a a man may say thoughts of uh, attraction that are sinful to someone of the same gender are part of the sins I struggle with. They're part of the sins I daily seek to turn away from, repent and mortify. Um, But they are part of the sins that I struggle with. Um, These overtures do not disqualify someone uh, who makes those those statements who is in that position. Uh, We we recognize that brother as turning from sin and seeking to be faithful in that. The key is I identify it as sin. I call it a sin. I don't consider it part of my identity. I don't say it's something that can't change or is part of my created uh, being. Um, even and just on the change thing, let me let me comment on that with the progressive sanctification because that's the key. We're not saying um, uh, what what we're not demanding is we say well any you should be able to say any day now these might go away and I might um, you know not have any more of these thoughts or not uh, struggle with that anymore. Progressive sanctification is saying, I'm daily turning from sin, daily seeking the Lord, and daily looking to the Holy Spirit whose power is sufficient to do all things. He may totally remove a sin or almost completely remove a particular sin from my life. It may may not be like that. It may be a longer, slower growth. We don't know. But what we're saying is to be faithful, you need to be turning from something, looking to the Holy Spirit and expecting that He is able to overcome sin in our life, even though, like I said earlier, we all know that some sins will be sins we struggle with from day one to the end of our, our lives. But we should be growing in our turning from them, our experiencing them less, hopefully, as we look to Christ and His power by His Spirit um, and, and looking to, to Him as he, he works in us. So I, hopefully that helps clarify um, that question. I don't know if you want to add to it uh, at all. That's good, Jess. In the same section, this is great, two questions in the same section.
2: Yeah, I was just wondering, what happens then to the churches who don't agree with these statements or the teaching elders who don't? Mm -hmm. um, Because even though, you know, 80-20 seems like a pretty good number, like 20% is still a pretty large number.
0: That's a great question, Jess. So if, you know, what happens to, to those who disagree here? Um, you want to talk about that or do you want me to comment on it? Well, I, I can comment on it. I just, see, I'll just start talking and yeah. then Tucker will be up here standing yeah. here. I want to make sure.
4: Well, there is a sense in which even the men who voted against it, they may be against like some wording here. It, they may probably very 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 few of them are just totally opposed to it the, the ones that are totally opposed to it are probably have a foot out the door to lead the denomination and, and you know and so, and so, sometimes men or even the whole churches may need to leave the denomination if they're just totally not on board with how we're trying to approach these things but a lot a lot of those people are probably not 100 percent opposed to what we're doing and there is a sense in which even when you find yourself in the minority vote, there's the principle of yielding to your brother. And, and so in good faith, we'll trust that, um, I don't know, hopefully these overtures pass by two-thirds majority by all our presbyteries. And um, hopefully our churches and our presbyteries will practice these things. And so you're you, you kind of are getting at an interesting question. What happens if we find ourselves... Year, couple years down the road, if we learn that churches or patriarchs are not enforcing these standards, well, there, there is a disciplinary process within uh, the PCA that we will act on. Um, and so, so sometimes in our past, we've been almost oh, we almost a little too zealously acting in, in disciplinary fashion. But hopefully, in a God-honoring, faithful, biblical way, we'll exercise discipline and hold pastors, churches, presbyters accountable to enforcing the standard and not letting men come through ordination who clearly are not renouncing these lifestyles and sins and temptations in a, in a godly and biblical way. So um, you know, we proceed on good faith, we proceed on the principle of yielding you know, in subjection to your brothers, but yeah uh, accountability will be a key part of making this uh, implementing the standard uh, in years to come.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And just that's kind of my answer to Rick's question earlier, too. The key will be, will the denomination act uh, on these things um, if, if it comes out that some disagree and just want to continue in the domination but, but not according to the standards? Will, will we act? And, that'll and be I,
4: key. I would just add that, you know, I'm clerk of our presbytery. I, I'm, I'm very engaged with what's going on with our 22 churches I kind of know where our, our, I feel like our presbytery is in a very good place, very healthy, very unified. I don't have any concerns going forward, but I am aware of other presbyteries that are somewhat toxic, sadly. Uh, and we've had men come to our presbytery from other presbyteries, and they're just, it's a breath of fresh air for them to come into our presbytery. I am concerned about some other presbyteries where some of these conservative, progressive battles are uh, at. You know, at loggerheads. And so we need to be concerned about that, pray for that. And I realize that I would love just to focus on here and focus on our presbytery, but I realize now we have a responsibility to be more engaged denominationally and and maintain biblical standards and accountability for the good of the whole um, for years to
2: come.
0: Good question. Yeah, right up here. Microphone's coming behind you.
2: Just to kind of piggyback over that last question. Yeah. Over that overture 23, when we see that basically 22% voted against it, so how my mind was looking at that was 22% no longer believe in a biblical statement on sexuality. I'm hearing now that's not the case. Um, can you help me understand that 22% a little bit more, why, they, why you think they, they were such a large... You know, you can say 80% voted against it. That's wonderful. I'm concerned about the 22% yep. that didn't vote for it. Do you have any thoughts on why it was that high?
0: Yeah, sure. I'd be, I'd be happy to. Um, so I will speak as the person who was at my first General Assembly. Right? So uh, there are people who, who may be able to speak to it uh, more thoroughly, I certainly don't know everyone's mind, but um, I think there are three, probably three camps there. Um, one camp is there are some that I would be concerned that may not have a fully biblical position, and 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 those I, I think it's a small number, but we should be concerned uh, there. Another another group I think um, is might pick out a particular word or particular phrase and say. I think we could have gotten a better word instead of that word. But once you make a change to our book of church order, its you just heard, it's very difficult to change it. And so the philosophy of many is, if we're going to change it, we need to get it right the first time, not go through the whole process saying it's pretty decent, and then try to go through a whole change process again. So I know, for instance, of another, a number of people who felt this word or this group of two or three words it's not that I disagree, but I, I'm, I'm concerned that it's a little vague or it's not the best phrase, and so I'm voting against it in hopes that it will be defeated so that we can come up with a better phrase. Um, and then I, I think a third group would, would be in favor, but I think—I'm trying to think best how to describe this, a third group—would say, as a denomination, sometimes there, are, there is a portion of our denomination that's on the other side— and is maybe so harsh about these things that we really have said things that are um, judgmental and unbiblically harsh about some who struggle but are seeking to struggle faithfully. And they would wish there would be some statement saying, we're not going to go to that length, or we're, we're not going to this point of harshly and unbiblically condemning anyone who's struggling with sin. And they would, like an, they would just like a statement added to this, that might be clarifying. So I know people in that camp that voted against it for that reason. So I think, I think you've got... Some would be more concerning. Some we just need to say, is this the wisest language and, 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 and would be largely in agreement but would want sharper language there. And then, and then others would just wish there was something else added and so vote against it in hopes that they have a chance maybe to propose an addition uh, to it.
4: Yeah, maybe just elaborate to elaborate on that. Um, but Pastor Walker is saying, among that 22%, I also give some grace and benefit of the doubt. Especially for those, I don't know, maybe urban ministries, where you have a lot more gay identity people, and you've got people coming to your church who are calling themselves gay Christians, and how to help them shift into a biblical identity. That takes time, that's hard work. Um and, and there are good men, good churches doing faithful ministry who agree with us and are wrestling with how, how to present ourselves to the culture, how to bring people along, afraid that our language may get too strict, too tight, too offensive. Um, there are sensitivities there. I think, I think they can be overly sensitive, uh, but I can respect kind of where they're coming from uh, as they're trying. You know, with amended, tr- trying to have a ministry that is a broad tent, all-inclusive, trying to welcome sinners and broken people from all backgrounds, um, and somehow trying to react to, yes, in some sense, conservative churches and leaders have said very regrettable things uh, in attacking and bashing uh, people, uh, whether the gay community and, and, and so forth. Um, so I, I, I can respect brothers who may struggle with some of our language, even though we want to hold firm to what is biblically true and bring them along and say, Okay, if we can improve this language, let's do that, but let's not compromise our biblical standards to accommodate culture.
0: It's well said. Maybe we'll take one last question if there is one. Uh, Yeah, in the back, I think that's Steve there. microphone's coming. We'll take one more here, and then we'll close and sing, but please come talk to Tucker or myself uh, if you have more questions.
1: I have read that social justice is a very divisive issue among Southern Baptists, and I was wondering if this is an issue in the PCA.
0: Yes. Uh, (laughs) Now... I'll, let me give, a, let me give a, maybe a clearer statement on that. So issues of, of race, critical race theory, um, social justice, those are absolutely questions that are being discussed. Um, those questions, I think, took a back seat to these questions uh, on sexuality at this General Assembly. I will tell you that uh, I went to a seminar that was presented on the topic of critical race theory, and it was just fabulously done, uh, giving a biblical rebuttal uh, of critical race theory, of concerns with it, and how to live out a, a biblically faithful approach to issues of race and ethnicity and, and prejudice instead. I was encouraged by that seminar. It was excellent. Um, I think what the whole denomination, again, you're going to see at some point some questions over language because we, we do want to call out... Um, the PCA is historically a southern denomination. And I can tell you that historically in the PCA, there are significant examples of racial prejudice uh, and sin in our denomination's history. So how do, we, how do we recognize that and seek to be biblically faithful, to care for those who are poor or uh, those who are vulnerable and address these in biblical ways without borrowing cultural language, which almost always brings in cultural ideas and baggage with it, uh, and how do we do that? So I think, I think you will absolutely see questions about how to best do that uh, from the denomination, um, but I'm encouraged by at least what I heard uh, this year on those questions. So yeah, definitely, definitely another area to pray for as we seek to balance that well, but um, I'm, I'm encouraged by what I heard. So thank you for that question. Well, again, please, let's, for the sake of time, let's um, move towards uh, concluding, and we're going to conclude with uh, another hymn, but please do come up and talk to Tucker or myself if you have more questions uh, about the denomination.